0: In 2009, a local artist touched down in an abandoned house on Dorchester Avenue on Chicago's South Side, and where most investors would immediately turn uh, to demolition. This artist saw something different. See, Theaster Gates, that's right, Theaster Gates, beautiful name, Uh, he saw promise for more. And over the coming months, he stripped the structure down to its bare bones. And then as he did in most of his artworks, he used these salvageable me- like parts as, as basically his, um, the medium for his next works of art. And then from the earnings, he turned what most would demolish and then rebuild. He turned into something new on Dorchester Avenue. Eventually it became a library and a slide archive and a soul food kitchen. It became a beacon of hope in, in otherwise bleak community. You see, Theaster saw more than just another abandoned building. He saw the promise, and I want you to hold on to that. And Not everyone saw the same promise, but for Theaster, it was like woven into his vision of the world. And maybe this is just how artists see the world. They see something that us merely mortal folk are unable to see. but. Similar to another man, namely John the Baptist, he saw something different. You see, in an otherwise obscure space, namely the life of a Nazarene named Jesus, John the Baptist saw the promise. We meet this man, John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, picking up in verse 6. You hear this little line again that Allison just read. Uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That has to be one of the most mundane introductions to anybody in the Bible. There was a guy. He was sent from God off to a good start. His name was John. It's like, oh, nice to meet you there, John. Uh, but but listen, listen to who he is. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. A pretty strong introduction now. But then it, it kind of uh, dips off again. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So right in the middle of John, the, this is the author of the gospel, right in the middle of John's cosmic introduction, you know, the whole, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God, that whole bit, right in the middle of that, he kind of tarries off and does this little sidebar of narrative discourse. He, he introduces us to a character in the story also named John, and this is the witness. In other words, he's not the life, he's not the light, he's not the hope of Israel, He's the one who is going to bear witness to Israel's life, light and hope. In an introduction like this it garners a lot of intrigue. If if you are the one who is a voice calling out in the wilderness, if you're wearing, you know, animal skins and eating bugs and honey and stuff, like this is you're going to draw some intrigue. And there's certainly a lot to say about John the Baptist. Especially considering the fact that later Jesus will say this is the greatest man born among women. I mean, that's a strong word from Jesus coming in for John the Baptist. But rather than do a deep dive into John the Baptist's life, I just, I want to explore his life through three scenes, if you will. The limits, a priest, and the promise. Limits, a priest, and the promise. See, in John 1.8, we get into this first scene on limits. It's these words in John 1.8. starts off, he himself was not. This is the banner over John the Baptist's life. He himself was not. And admittedly, this is an odd way to introduce a character, but it makes sense when you consider John's start, that is John the author. I should just call John the Baptist Johnny B., because this could get confusing, but I trust that you'll be able to stay with. Um, So if you recall from a couple weeks back, or perhaps you're new to the Bible and the gospel according to John, John starts out by making these cosmic claims. It goes like this. In the beginning was the word. And if you were Jewish or Gentile, basically anybody who's not a Jew, you just heard your story being told. It was a story grand enough for every Jew in the beginning, and it was The Word is then a story grand enough for every Greek-speaking person in the Mediterranean. And the Word was slash is united to God and is God. Just as God spoke in the beginning, so too God is speaking again through His Word. And now this Word, just like God's Word in the beginning, is the animating reality of all life. This is the Word the Creator is recreating in the Word, or as we said a few weeks back, heaven's glory grounded in humanity. This is who we meet in Jesus. And that Word gives life to all of humanity. That's you and that's me. John then compares the life to light, literally the, the, the life that illumines everything. And it's breaking into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. These are the the cosmic claims. And then after this, there was a man sent from God, and his name was John. This, of course, is the other John, who is not the word, the light, or the life. So who is this John? Who is the second John, Johnny B? Well, if you go down to verse 15, you start to see a little bit more texture around his life. This is John the Baptist picking up in verse 15. He's the one who's crying out about somebody else. This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It kind of sounds like a riddle. Here's the translation. He himself was not. John is not just deflecting. He is redirecting the light. Instead, the one before John, that is the Word, the one united with God, the Word is the one full of grace and truth. The Word is the one revealing the Father's love. John is not the Word. He's simply giving voice to the Word. He is a witness. Jesus, on the other hand, the living Word, Jesus is the inflection point, the watershed of John's life. He himself was not. Now how about for us? What I mean is, how does life feel when you are not at the center? At this point, I, I like wrote out a couple of what I thought were funny jokes about TikTok, and then I just heard the voice of my wife saying, those aren't funny, so I deleted them. But if you think about all the major social media apparatus, or even just life in general, it kind of forces us to the center of our own story, and then invites other people to reflect their lives based on what we're doing. So how does it feel when you are not in the center? I don't imagine that you or me, of course not. I, we would never think of ourselves as self-centered, but when we pause and we consider how we live our lives, um, I'm quickly reminded of how self-centered I am because I have two young boys, and, and they are just by nature self-centered, they're little narcissists, uh, but they're, they're foreign too, so that's what they have going for them, that's their developmental life. I am in my 30s, I have no excuse. My point is this, the banner over John's life is he himself was not, and when I start to feel that banner encroaching on my own, it feels a little bit suffocating, but John is here to say that there's something freeing in living under that banner. Because John's life moves beyond himself as the sinner, and then it makes a splash. Yes, that's now two water jokes about John the Baptist. The first one went under the radar, but that one I'm going to let you know, that's funny. See, John's message about baptizing It starts to get some traction. And it's not just his weird attire and his odd diet. It's his message. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's calling people to move away from the temple apparatus, which he's saying, all of your religiosity is broke. Now come out to the wilderness and let's start a renewal movement in the name of God. So these people start to come with curiosity in hand. And this is how this whole scene plays out. We pick up in verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him about who he was. And hear this line in verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Say that with me. I am not the Messiah. Let's do that one more time just for funsies. I am not the Messiah. Well, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Nope, the prophet, Uh uh-uh. Finally, he said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And channeling the prophet Isaiah says, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. What comes to John is pressure it's it's pressure from two fronts there's religious anxiety and social expectation and when the religious leaders come they, they interrogate john they come with their anxiety in hand and if uh, anxiety can be kind of a buzzword anxiety is simply concern about what's ahead In the Jewish imagination, there is this expectancy. If you recall, they're living, like 90 plus percent live below what we would, it's like not even poverty, they live in the dirt. They are subjugated citizens, not even, they're in their land, but they don't possess it. It's like if you grew up on a farm and then somebody came in and said, I'll let you work the land and I might pay you. How disorienting that would be. That's the story of the people of Israel. They are longing for the oppressors to be thrown off. And they have a story in their back pockets about some rebels who just uh, like 150 years ago, the Hasmoneans, this is all all like your Hanukkah uh, trivia is coming to bear right now. The Hasmoneans threw off the leaders of the day. So they have a story of somebody who can come and throw off power. They come with anxiety about their present circumstances. They come with anxiety about what's coming ahead. And these leaders wonder if John, are you the anointed one? Are you the king, the Messiah, who would overthrow all injustice and rule over Israel? But John confessed freely that he himself was not. Now, I just wanna pause right here. Um, I really enjoy history. Sometimes it, it gets a little thick in the sermon and you're like, we don't. this is like the history channel, I don't wanna to listen to anymore. It's really exciting. It makes the, the text come to life. But that's my stick. it may not be yours. This is not a history lesson. This is the, the word of God coming to the people of God to say that there might be some religious anxiety that's coming to bear about what might be. In other words, how are our religious structures inviting us to become compliant people. And what does that make us into? John is disrupting the religiosity of his day and the people are wondering, who are you? You don't fit the mold. John doesn't bow to the religious anxiety, nor does he bow to the social pressure to be the, the prophet who would lead God's people into abundance. He, he looks at both of those pressures and he continues to move through them, how? Like how is it that John the Baptist stands in the face of mounting pressure? I don't know if you heard that line in verse 20, but we'll say it again. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. In the face of religious anxiety, in the face of social pressure, John does one thing, He receives the gifts of his limits. In the face of all of these mounting pressures, John receives the gift of his limits. He is simply the voice. He is not the word. In other words, John knows who he's not. And he knows what's his to do and not his to do. He embraces the gift of his limits. Which then puts us in kind of a pickle, because it asks us this question, what are you trying to do that's not yours? There's a technical term for this, over-responsibility. Who are you trying to be that actually cuts against the grain of who you are? what I've noticed, I've spent most of my like prof- professional, quote-unquote, life in church spaces, and I'm an extrovert, and that bodes well for me. What I've learned about our church, which um, is inhabited by many people who are energized with uh, by time away from people, is that if you are not extroverted, you have to turn something on when you come into church spaces. And that sounds like a type of death. Like, you're, you're telling me, I have to, like, kind of die a little to come to a place where I might actually be filled with new life. Are you you smelling what I'm stepping in here? Like, that sounds like, who are you trying to be that cuts against the grain of who you actually are? This is the thing that John is unearthing if we let him, is what does it mean for you to receive the gift of your limits? You see, a limit is not a complex concept. It's similar to a boundary in that it says, go no further, but whereas a boundary is outward facing and says to one coming f- towards you, go no further, a limit is you saying to you, go no further. You want to know something kind of ironic? Is uh, oh, I'll t- I'll, I'm going to tell you, that's that's like a line, that's rhetorical. Um, a couple of weeks back, it was s- Saturday and um, I had the COVIDs, but you know what I... I was uh, failing to receive the gift of my limits. So that night, uh, Jess gives me a hug, and she goes, oh, you're warm. You have a fever. No, I don't. Well, then then take your temperature. No. So then I do what any man of God would do is I go and I get in bed, and I pull my hooded sweatshirt over my head and all the blankets, and I refuse to acknowledge that I have COVID. About 15 minutes later, I think um, it was either like COVID or the spirit of Jesus convicting me. Um, by the way, before that, Jessica said, you're a fool if you go to church. So that's uh, what you call the loving voice of God through the community of Jesus. And I go and I I take, you know, the thing, and yeah, it basically yells at me that you have the Rona. Um, and how ironic it is that Uh, That evening, I had worked through this text. I had taught on receiving the gift of your limits and then said, no, I will not take my temperature because no, I do not have this thing. Um, Who are you trying to be that cuts against the grain of who you actually are? Like, What limit are you perpetually crossing? We don't always choose our limits. Uh, it could be the condition of your body, a state of politics, your family of origin. Lord knows you did not choose to be born into the family that you were at the time of human history, but here you are in that family, in these circumstances. Perhaps God wants to write something new through you. See, I doubt any of us feel tempted to um, like, call ourselves the Messiah I don't imagine that your coworkers are coming up to you or your friends at school are saying like, oh, are, are you the Messiah? Mainly because th- that word is not like in the, I don't know, vocabulary of any of our coworkers, or friends, my guess is. But some of us sure do act like it. We, we act like we can do it all. We repeat these little mantras to remind ourselves, I got this. Or maybe we hear it on a podcast like, you got this. If it's parenting, that's kind of my season of life. W- whatever this may be, we say to ourselves, we, we can do the job. And we do the job seven to six because Elon is like, well, 40 hours won't change the world. How are you going to get people on Mars if you're only working 40 hours a week? You've got to at least 60, 70, 80, 100 is probably where you're at. But then you like, literally burn yourself out. So we think we can do it all. We volunteer in the community, we show up for friends in times of need, we have a social life, we meal prep, we meditate, we're invested and in present to our partner, our spouse, our friends, we pray, we read the best literature as well as the Bible. Uh, and then we have that like Instagram worthy six pack. And then we also all feel the anxiety of all of those expectations. What are the limits that you perpetually push through to bow to that social pressure? Like what if we can't? What, whatever it may be. What if more often than we'd care to admit, we ignore our limits, and in the face of mounting pressure, we like blow right through them? How many of you have heard a coworker, a family member, a friend, or you yourself say, "I'm burnt out"? Just a show of hands. I'm not even sure I know what that means, but it means at least. I can no longer do the same thing I'm doing, but I'm continuing to do it because I kind of have to. You know, there's this guy with funny hair named Einstein, and he had this little quip. Do you want to hear it? This This is his little quip. He would say that doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, you know what that's called? It's called insanity. It would be insane to not receive the gift of our limits. Our limits are like little prophets sent by the Spirit of Jesus to call us into something, namely holiness. And maybe that sounds a bit like bible Well, I'm a Bible teacher at a church, so here we are. See, where we confess, I got this, John confessed freely, I am not. In other words, I can't. I love the idea of coming to a church on a Sunday and the word that you leave with is I can't. Maybe that just excites me. That, maybe that'll excite you later over brunch. Like, uh, uh, imagine the freedom of not doing for others what they can and probably should do for themselves. Imagine the freedom of I can't. Imagine the gift your limits desire to give you. I think that we need to learn that we can't do it all, that we can't save the people around us, and that we can't, if we're honest, save ourselves. You actually don't have the raw materials needed to bring about your own salvation. Looking inside is going to yield you finding the broken you that you experience when you look in the mirror, but the person standing next to you And I'm thinking not just metaphorically, but literally Jesus of Nazareth through the presence of the Spirit is there seeing you in your brokenness and is desiring to be with you to say you can't because I can and I will and I am and I will be. This is the voice that we need to hear. We are not the Messiah because there already is one. John is here to give us the gift of I can't if we're willing to receive it. He's here to invite us to set down the hustle, to set aside the hurry, and to open to the love and care of the one who can and did and will indeed save us. And I know limits can feel like restraints. They can feel like repressive structures that hold us down. But John shows us that limits are the things that make way for freedom. Freedom is not being able to do whatever the heck you want to do. Freedom is the ability to do the right thing in front of you, to properly restrain yourself. That is freedom. That's what John's inviting us into, which in fact brings us to our second scene, a priest. Because I don't think that these... Uh, that John's capacity to be so free just came by his own self. He didn't drum that thing up. And this is what I mean. In, In another biography of Jesus's life and ministry called The Gospel According to Luke, we're introduced to an older man named Zachariah who served in God's temple. He himself was a priest and on one occasion, Zachariah was attending to his priestly duties and he had what some today might call a mystical experience. This is how Luke records it in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 and 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Proper response. 13, but the angel, the messenger of God said to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to call him John. The heavenly messenger goes on to tell Zechariah that his son will be a, a joy and a delight to him, a joy and a delight to his countrymen, and more he will be great in the sight of Yahweh. And that many will turn away from the disobedience and toward righteousness because of his son. But you see, Zechariah is old. Like I'm talking super wrinkly. Very, very old. And so Zechariah he doubts he expresses his doubt to this messenger. And so as a sign to Zechariah, his tongue is bound, literally unable to speak until his son is born. And so he comes out of doing his priestly duties and he starts gesturing and drawing her in the And basically he is mute until the boy is born. And you fast forward then to the end of Luke chapter one and listen to the words that flow from Zechariah's mouth. This is picking up in verse 67. Luke one sixty seven reads like this, his father, this is John, his father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, he spoke out God's word of blessing. Verse 68, listen to this, folks. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I think when my boys were born, I like cried, said a name. John is like, He's in the room prophesying the words of God over his son. How is it that John stands in the face of mounting pressure? Two things, first, God God marked his life. At another point in the scriptures, we're told that John from the womb is filled with the Holy Spirit. Like baby Jesus rolls up in and he's like kicking. He's kicking at the side of Elizabeth. Like that's, that's John, he just recognizes the presence of God. He's filled with the very personal presence. But we don't meet John as a baby, do we? No, we meet John as a man. And so again, how is it that John stands in the face of mounting pressure? And to my mind, it's the words that we just heard. His father's word. Hear that verse again in in verse 76, hear this. And you, my child. Maybe this just comes out of my stage of life, and, and if so, sincerest of apologies but but something leapt off the page when i was reading this like john knows who he's not because from the his beginning his father was prophesying over him his his father's been speaking his destiny over him from the moment he was born there is something potent about a father's blessing like a strange alchemy of the soul, a father's blessing brings out gold even amid despair and dysfunction or doubt. And where many of us live with this strange identity gap, John does not. He knows who he is and he knows who he was not. And what's curious is Many of us don't have those same words echoing in our minds or imaginations. We don't have the affirmation of our Father that's building us up when we are in despair. We live with this gap of identity. And so we have the beckon, like the clarion call of the world that's inviting us to become something, to express something external. And then we have these desires churning within us, some of them ordered by God's love and most of them disordered. And there is a place, this gap where we are desperate for somebody to call us out into something. John had that something. And it was from that place that he was able to recognize the promise. And that brings us to our third and final scene. See, the climax of John's self-denial, you could call it, it sounds like this, it picks up in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world And in that line, John's drawing on the whole collective conscious of the people of Israel. This is their foundation story. This is the Exodus account, the Lamb of God, the Passover, the one who stands in the gap. That's who and how he sees Jesus. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So here we have John the Baptist at the end of our teaching text nearly rooted in his father's affirmation, filled with the Holy Spirit. And John beholds in Jesus more than an obscure life. He sees the promise. In that line, John saw Jesus coming toward him it's not just that John was the first one to see Jesus like glowing with a halo or something, or Jesus is walking so regally through the Galilean countryside, blonde hair flowing just like blown out recently. And that's not, that's not the picture. This is an idiom of the day. It's an idiom that we still use. We, we talk about our walk with Jesus. Or, or, or perhaps we say, oh yeah, someone walked away from their faith which isn't about their gait or their stride or how they carry themselves. To talk about their walk, it's their life. When John saw Jesus, when he saw how he lived, when he saw his obedience to the Torah, when he saw his love of God and his love of neighbor, it made him exclaim, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John saw the promise. And because he was rooted in his Father's word, filled with the Holy Spirit, he knew he, him, he himself was not, and he confessed freely that he was not the Messiah, he could then identify the one who would take in death to his very body so that we could live. John saw in Jesus's life the promise. Or as Zechariah prophesied. Here is the one who would give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of their God. John saw the promise. See, something that's um, about our limits, when we we blow through our limits... (laughs) and we think we can do for others what they could and probably should do for themselves, when we ignore those things or, we essentially say, I, I can handle this aspect of my life. I can accomplish these things. But meanwhile, God in Christ through the presence of the Spirit desires to work in you and through you to be for you who you cannot be for yourself. This is the gift on offer in Jesus. And if you're thinking, that sounds, I don't know, too good to be true. That sounds like maybe too little too late. John is, let's just just check in here with one another, folks. At 500 Locusts in downtown Des Moines, the cosmic king of the universe is here to say the promise revealed in Jesus is on offer to you. Do you want to receive that you are not the one who can save yourself, but that Jesus can come in with a wrecking ball of grace and truth and through the rubble of your life build something beautiful? If you're like, that sounds scary and delightful, I would like that. The Lord Jesus is here to say yes and amen, to participate with you in that. And here's here's the truth. You may not have a father's blessing in your past. You may not see yourself worthy of God speaking anything over you other than condemnation. But Jesus is. The word of life is here as more than an answer to some vague spiritual questions or frustration. He is the promised son of God, the one whose life was stripped away so that in the power of the spirit, he could make a dwelling place of peace. See, the odd thing is that Jesus sees in you and in me a place that is worthy to dwell because we bear God's image He sets up residence in us as the temple, and not just generally, but like that holy of holies. You, me, the church, and by God's grace, increasingly so, this church is where God and Christ chooses to take up residence. We are not the Messiah, and praise God that that's not true. You, me, like we we cannot save anyone, but we know we know the one who can. We know the one who can heal. We know the one who can release from bondage to addiction. We know the one who can release us from the, like the lies that have helped us captive. We know the one who it is. It is not you, it is not me, but it is the one. It is the word, it is the life, it is the light of all men. It is Jesus Messiah. And so I would invite you to turn, to turn and reflect with Jesus.